0: So we've been going through Acts uh, all fall, uh, and we're going to be in it for a while. Uh, So I I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, why we are doing this. Why are we going through a book? Uh, Part of the goal of this is that at the end of this series, you will have a really good understanding not only of the themes of Acts, but somewhat of like the structure and scope of it. So that when we talk about this individual passage, you know, we're talking about 11 verses in the middle of Acts, I want you to be able to kind of place this incident within the scope of the entire book. This passage in particular is vital to understand in the context of where it sits in the book of Acts and where it sits in the scope of the entirety of Scripture. In fact, uh, this passage, uh, which deals with kind of shocking events, uh, is, is difficult to understand uh, correctly if you don't keep that context in mind. Uh, so in light of that, And since we haven't been in Acts for several weeks, let's go back briefly and talk about what we've done so far and a little bit about the broader structure of the book as a whole. So if the book of Acts has a thesis statement, uh, it it, it occurs in uh, chapter 1, verse 8. So in in verse uh, 8 of chapter 1, we read this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The uh, the speaker of these words is Jesus Christ immediately before he ascends up into heaven. The opening action that occurs in the book of Acts is the ascension of Jesus up into heaven and the instruction to his disciples to go out by the power of the Holy Spirit and testify about him, to deliver testimony to the world. And the uh, geographical constraints that we see in this opening passage really structure the book of Acts itself. As we see at each stage, uh, the gospel is going out by the power of the Holy Spirit, the testimony of the apostles in the three different locations mentioned in our opening passage or in in this opening verse. Uh, First, in chapters 1 through 7, we focus on the apostles bearing witness about Jesus by the power of the Spirit in the city of Jerusalem. At the close of that, the apostles are scattered out, or sorry, the church is scattered out into Judea and Samaria, and they bear witness by the power of the Holy Spirit in Judea and Samaria. That lasts from chapter 8 to chapter 12, and then following that, from chapter 13 to the end, the attention turns to the apostle Paul and his bearing witness about Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit to the ends of the earth. And of course, the ending of Acts is ambiguous. It doesn't really end uh, because that task, that like structure continues to this day. The gospel, the testimony about Jesus has not yet reached the ends of the earth. Jerusalem it reached. Judea and Samaria it reached. But the ends of the earth, it has not yet reached. So in, in many ways, we are still living uh, in the book of Acts. Uniquely among the narratives of Scripture our lives take place within this narrative. Uh, so that's a little bit about the broad context. Uh, I have some further subdivisions. I, this is the only other subdivision I'm going to give you. Don't worry, we're not going like, to subdivide eternally. The subdivision of the section that this passage is in. So this is chapter 5 and occurs in our opening a section in which the gospel is being taken to the city of Jerusalem. That section can be divided roughly into four parts. It begins with an introduction in which the church is started. The Holy Spirit descends, the apostles all speak in tongues, Peter delivers a sermon, thousands are converted, and the church begins. That's the introductory section. Uh, Then that follows uh, three kind of stages in Jerusalem of the church. And those stages are marked by escalating persecution from the authorities in Jerusalem. So the opening section kind of culminates... With uh, threats against the lives of the apostles being made by the authorities. Just words. No physical violence, but, but threats against them. And that section, which uh, it, our, our, um, it closes uh, what we've done so far, uh, is followed by the section that we're going to start today, five through about halfway through sixth. And that culminates in an actual uh, physical persecution against the apostles. They are, they are whipped. And then the final section. Of this opening part uh, culminates in the martyrdom of Stephen, uh, and so it, you can see how that like escalates from threats to physical violence till finally death. And that action uh, in which Stephen is killed is the inciting incident for the scattering of the church out into Judea and Samaria. In many ways, it's the way that God uh, sends His people out to spread uh, the message of Jesus further. So today's passage uh, begins that kind of second sec- section which will culminate in physical persecution against the apostles. And over the next couple weeks, we're going to take a look at um, that section. All right, the immediate context of our passage, what, what came right before what we read today, is an account of the early church, including uh, a, a practice that had kind of sprung up recently in the early church. And that, that was that wealthy people who owned property would take their property, sell it, and then take the proceeds from that sale and bring it to the feet of the apostles. And the author of, our, of the book of Acts, Luke, kind of characterizes that as a, almost like a fad that was occurring within the church. So lots of people were doing this. There were apparently uh, needs for money in the church and so um, various wealthy people were selling these properties and then taking it and putting it at the apostles' feet. And specifically, a, a guy named Barnabas is mentioned as doing this. Barnabas will become an important figure later in the book. Uh, so uh, it doesn't explicitly say this, but there's a sense that you can get that uh, this fad that was started uh, was, was almost like a way to kind of gain prominence in the early church or to gain an audience uh, with the apostles. If you recall... There, uh, there are the 12 apostles at this point, uh, and, excuse me, and the church is like several thousand people. It's not, it's not a small group. It's several thousand people. Uh, and so, um, there might've been a sense, I'm not saying that everyone was doing it for this motivation, but there might've been a sense that some people felt that, um, if you had money, you could kind of get access to the apostles by, by taking the money and putting it at the apostles' feet, um, Uh, Certainly, uh, we get a sense in our passage today that that might have been a motivation uh, that Ananias and Sapphira had in what they did. Uh, You know, it's not crazy. Uh, Money buys access to power in the world. It's just kind of how the world works. If you have money, you can buy your way into influence. Uh, And so certain people um, may have seen that as an avenue for influence in the early church. So that leads us into our story today of Ananias and Sapphira. What specifically happens? We don't know anything else about Ananias and Sapphira except what we have in this account uh, right here in this section. They're not mentioned elsewhere. Uh, We don't know anything else about them. But what they do, they apparently are uh, people of some wealth. They sell a piece of property together and they agree upon this together. They take a a portion of it and secretly keep it for themselves. And then Ananias takes the rest and uh, presents it as though it were the whole. So the, the money that he got from the sale, he presents a part of it as though it were all of it at the feet of the apostles. Doesn't say what his motivation are, is, but you can kind of uh, surmise that it was probably some sort of attempt to gain status within the church, to be seen as uh, the generous people that were kind of lauded in the early church. Uh, Peter, however, um, enlightened or empowered by the uh, Spirit of God, uh, identifies what is happening. He knows what is happening, and he calls Ananias out for it. <clears throat> he says, uh, "You know, how is Satan so filled your heart that you have decided to lie to the Spirit of God?" Um, and then, uh, you know, that the result of that is an execution of a sentence against Ananias. Ananias. So Peter tells him, "You have not lied to men, but to God." And when he says that, at that moment. Ananias just keels over, dead. Uh, There's an immediate execution of judgment upon Ananias. Three hours later, his wife comes in, not knowing what had happened. She also uh, comes before Peter, and Peter asks her, is this the amount of money that you received for the sale? She says, yes, although she knew it wasn't. And Peter says, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? She also falls down dead. The fruit of all this is a uh, fear within the congregation of the saints. So the early church is filled with fear. There is fear both within the church by people that were, uh, belong to Jesus, and there's fear that is spread outside of the church as well. Uh, so fear in, 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 not only for those inside the church, but for those outside of the church. <clears throat> okay, so isn't this a great passage for me for like my first sermon? really uh uplifting and everything. Okay, we it's I, I think there's a lot like of uh, interesting stuff that we can get out of this and u- ultimately the gospel will be preached during it, all right? So this isn't just a judgment sermon. But let's uh start by clarifying some common misreadings, some common ways that this uh I've seen this story misunderstood. Uh first of all, although Peter is like representing the apostles, it is not Peter that executes judgment against Ananias and Sapphira. So Peter speaks the judgment, but it is God that executes it. These men, fall, uh, these men and women fall down dead spontaneously. Okay, So this is, not, this is not the will of the church or the will of Peter that this would happen, but it's God's will. Another common way that uh, this story is misread is that they are judged and executed because they held back some of the money. Uh, In fact, I, some people even tur- try to turn this into a sermon about giving. <laughs> that would be kind of a shocking sermon about giving, right? Uh, but that, it's important to understand that that is not what's going on here. Explicitly. You don't even have to read this very closely to understand that that's not what's happening. Peter says that uh, Ananias had three options about what he could do. What he could do. Uh, first of all, he could take the money from the sale, all of it, and bring it and put it at the apostles' feet. He could have done that. The second thing he could have done is he could have put part of it at the apostles' feet and kept part of it for himself, but been clear about what he was doing. He could have come to the apostles and said, listen, I sold a field, and here is part of the proceeds. The third thing that he could have done is that he could have sold the land and not given a cent to the church. All three of those things he could have done. Peter says, uh, when you sold the land, was not the money at your disposal to do with it as you wish? Whatever he wanted to do with it, he could have done and been accepted before God, right in God's eyes. Uh, So whatever else is happening here, they are not being punished because they, they held back part of the money for themselves. Or, sorry, they're not being punished because they did not give all of the money from the sale." So that leads us into two questions. Uh, What are they punished for? And then why are they punished so harshly? Why are they executed? Okay, first, what are they punished for? Uh, Well, Peter says to Ananias, you have not lied to men, but to God. And he says to Sapphira, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? So a lie that's given to God that tests the Spirit of the Lord. Whenever we lie, if, I, if you come to me and I lie to you, essentially what I'm doing is testing you. I'm testing whether or not you know that I'm lying, and I'm testing whether or not you have the will or the means to determine whether I'm lying. And if I, I, I'm assuming that you do not, that my concealing of the truth will be successful that I will get away with it. It's a test of you. <clears throat> so when uh, Ananias and Sapphira come and lie to the Spirit of God that's in the church, they're testing to see whether God knows whether or not they are speaking the truth. Now, I don't think that Ananias and Sapphira thought to themselves, I have a great idea. Let's test the Spirit of the Lord. Let's see if the Spirit of God is really at work in the early church. I don't think they said that. They simply assumed That God did not intervene in the world. That the presence of God, whatever it was in the church, was not something that actively influenced what was going on inside of it. And that therefore, they could lie to it safely because the people that they were lying to was not God, but men. And the men would never know. This is uh, the test that every person makes when they act hypocritically within God's church. Whenever people conceal things, hide them from each other, fail to disclose, keep things secret, in the church of God, they are lying not to men, but to God. <clears throat> now, it probably, when I, when I say it that way, it probably does not escape your notice that that sort of thing happens probably every day in every church in every part of the world. So that leads inevitably to our second question. Why are they punished so harshly? If anyone here is hypocritical, <laughs> why weren't you, aren't you also like struck down dead right now? <laughs> we got to figure that out, right? So why are they punished so harshly? <clears throat> well, first of all, I should say, they are not punished harshly necessarily. They are punished uh, in a way that seems extreme to us because what is happening when they are punished is that the judgment of God, which is going to follow his return, and which all men are going to find themselves under, in the case of Ananias and Sapphira, is very briefly brought forward into the present. It is not a harsh judgment. It is a just judgment. And it comes at a time that is unexpected to us. But it is not an unjust or undeserved, unmerited punishment. The punishment of every sin is death. And the fact that it is not executed immediately upon the commission of that sin is an act of God's mercy and grace. The fact that when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, they did not immediately perish was God's patience exercised for a purpose. Because if God executed judgment immediately upon the commission of the sin, then no man could live. The world would cease. The human race would expire. And God could not bring out his purposes for the world. It is because he is patient and waits. Because he passes over sin. That his purposes are eventually um, accomplished in the death of Jesus Christ. But if he wills to bring forward for a moment his, his future judgment of the world into the present in one case. He is just to do so. However, the question still remains. Why does He choose to do so in this situation? Why does God judge Ananias and Zephyr in a way that He does not judge other people? Well, uh, in order to understand that, we should look at other places in the Scripture in which God does something similar. Uh, And in fact... uh, there is a clue in our text that is connecting this story to another similar story in Israel's past. There is a word that the author uses that explicitly connects in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This story with another story. Okay, so this isn't like, guys, I found a similar passage. Trust Stephen here. This is the author is connecting these things. Okay, it's like a, it's like a reference uh, you know, if you're hanging out with one of uh, your friends, like I, I hang out with uh, my friend Joe Chai, and I uh, you know, make an office reference, and like maybe if you haven't watched The Office, you have no idea what, what, what just happened, but he immediately catches it. That's what's going on here. There's a reference here. If you're familiar with the Old Testament in Greek, then you would immediately catch it when you're reading it. Okay? I won't explain it. If you want to know more details about that, you can ask me, uh, but just trust me uh, on that one. So, what's the story? The story uh, is the account of the sin of Achan in the book of Joshua. A specific word connects these two things. So what happens in Joshua 7? Well, the Israelites have been liberated from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. They've been brought through the desert for 40 years by Moses. Moses has died, and now Joshua has been appointed to lead the people into the conquest of the land that had been promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is the land in which the nation of Israel is going to be started. The land long promised. And in the beginning of the account of the conquest of Canaan, or the promised land, which occupies the entirety of the book of Joshua, at the beginning of it, they go forward to their first battle. And because it's their first battle, God tells them, the plunder that you take from this first battle... It's like the first fruits that you give unto me. So whatever gold, silver, or bronze you plunder from Jericho belongs to me. Take none for yourself and everything else destroy completely. So the Israelites go forth. They battle against Jericho. Uh, you probably know this story. You know They march around the city. City walls fall down. They plunder it. And then they take the treasure of Jericho and they present it at the feet of of the leaders of Israel as uh, uh, devoted to the Lord. They do this universally except for one man, Achan. Instead of giving the treasure that he took, Achan takes a portion of it and buries it underneath his tent. As the Israelites go out for their next battle against the city of Ai, uh, they are very unexpectedly uh, roundly defeated. It was unexpected because up to this point they'd been moving from victory to victory to victory and of course uh, what has been promised them is that they are going to conquer this entire land. So now their second battle, they go out to fight Ai and they are embarrassed. So they come back and the leaders of Israel gather before the Lord and they're like, what should we do? Should we make more sacrifices? Why are we not, why did we not win this battle? The Lord comes to them uh, and speaks to them. And says that there, there is someone who is taken from what belongs to the Lord. Uh, and so Joshua has all the tribes of Israel march before him. And when the tribe that Achan belonged to marched before them, God told him, pick that tribe. Then he had every family from that tribe or every clan from that tribe march before him. And God showed him the clan. And then every family from that clan, and God showed him the family of Achan. Achan comes forward, Joshua says to him, confess your sin, and he does. Goes, digs up his treasure, gives it to Joshua, and then the entire assembly gathers around him, and they stone stone Achan, and he dies. That's the story of the sin of Achan, which our author Luke wants us to think of when we hear this story today. Now it's probably fairly clear some of the similarities between these two stories. In both cases, um, they keep for themselves something that's been dedicated to the Lord. <clears throat> By presenting to Peter uh, what he uh, showed as the entire offering, what he did was he rendered what he had kept for himself something that belonged to the Lord. That makes sense. So both of them keep from what is what belongs to the Lord. Both of them do it secretly under the assumption that no one will ever know. Therefore, putting to test whether or not God is at work in their community. In both cases, through the intervention of God, it is discovered, sin is exposed. In both cases, they are publicly punished. Publicly put to death. The sentence is decreed and executed in the presence of the whole people. There's one last similarity And this similarity, I think, is a key to understanding why exactly this punishment is so harsh. In both cases, this event occurs at the beginning, at the beginning of a new stage of the people of God. It's the initiation of something new for God's people. In the case of Achan, the Israelites are conquering the land which they will occupy for the next several thousand years. In the case of Ananias and Sapphira, the world is being conquered by the gospel. It's the beginning of the gospel going forth into all the earth. Beginning of the church. This connection between these two stories indicates to us what God wants to accomplish by executing judgment in this way. Obviously, every person that is a hypocrite in the eyes of God or who steals from God in the years that go on uh, are not punished in the same way, both in the case of the Israelites of old and the case of us today. This is not the normal way that God deals with these sort of sins. But at the beginning, what he wants to make clear to us is that God is present in the community of his people. And that there is nothing that is secret or hidden that won't be uncovered. That leads us into what what I think is the main point of this passage. And that is that the Holy Spirit is present in the church. Where God's people come together, the Holy Spirit is present with them. This is a truth that if I had asked you before we came in here, if I said, hey, Is the Holy Spirit here today? You probably would have said yes, right? That's the right answer. Yes, the Holy Spirit's here today. But this story brings home the shattering implications of the fact that God is here present with us. That when we worship, when we pray, that it is God who is addressed. That as we eat the sacrament, the Holy Spirit is present with us. That as we communicate with one another, The Holy Spirit is there. And therefore, when you present yourself to others as better than you are, when you keep secret or hidden things within the church, you lie to the Spirit of God. That brings us to a a corollary of our main point. Namely, that all hypocrisy in the church will one day be exposed. One of uh, the unappreciated parables of Jesus, well, I think it's unappreciated, in Matthew 13 is the story of the uh, wheat and the tares. So, in this parable, Jesus tells of a man who goes out into a field that he owns and sows seed in it good seed. Uh, but during the night, his enemy comes and sows weeds among the wheat that he had sown. And as the plants begin to grow, his servants come to him and tell him, there are weeds, someone has planted weeds in your field. Should we go out into the field and pull up all the weeds? The owner of the field replies and says, no, let them grow together. For if we pull out the weeds, we may pull out the wheat with it. Instead, at harvest time, we'll harvest the field and separate the weeds from the wheat. What Jesus is communicating to us in this parable is that in his community, in his church, there will be, until the end of time, until he returns, both true believers and hypocrites in the church. Both will be allowed to live within the church together. Now here at the beginning, uh, almost as if, uh, you know, you can imagine the, the servant in the field going out and pulling out a weed to go and show to the owner of the field. This is what happens to Ananias and Sapphira. Publicly, a weed is pulled up and exposed. Not because God is going to do that continually in the church over the course of history, but to tell us something. To make us wary. To help us, uh, bring, to bring home to us The fact that the Holy Spirit is present with us. He knows all. He judges all. So from this, we can draw a few conclusions. First of all, the presence of the Holy Spirit in our midst should lead us to fear hypocrisy. If we fear God, then we fear hypocrisy as well because you cannot hide in the presence of God. If God is feared in a church, hypocrisy will be as well. I say these warnings um, to myself as well, and only because they're in the Bible, but the Bible does say, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Paul says that uh, in 2 Corinthians. Hypocrisy will be exposed. God is with us. We should be afraid to lie to him because he is real. That's kind of the sobering one. There's a uh, good news in this story as well. Uh, another uh, conclusion that we can draw, and this is a glorious truth, there is no need for hypocrisy in God's church. Remember what Peter says to Ananias he tells him that he did not need to present that offering. He did not need to pretend to be what he was not. Because in the church of God, sinners are welcome. In the church of God, there is no one but those who have understood, been convicted of, and brought to the community of God's people their sin. And there is nothing that you need to fear disclosing. There is nothing that can bar you from the forgiveness of the cross of Jesus Christ. That is a glorious truth. And if there is something hidden, something secret, something you fear telling, let me tell you, you will be accepted. Not only by the eternal God, who has sent his son to die for that very purpose, but also by the the community of his people. Perhaps not perfectly by us, but to the best of our ability. Friends, this is a truth. Just speak to yourself. Is there something undisclosed? Is there something hidden? Are you lying to the Holy Spirit this morning? Well, you need not fear. There's no need for it. Then finally, a third conclusion we can draw is let us remember and thank the great mercy and kindness of God. Because remember that immediately upon the commission of sin, God could have executed judgment against us. But every one of us is here this morning because of his kindness and his mercy and his patience. And even now he's inviting you in his patience into the disclosure of yourself that you may be forgiven. This is God's mercy. Friends, there's nothing uh, better. And so as, as we gather this morning in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit, As we eat the bread, as we drink the wine and grape juice, we must remember that it is God who has given these things to us in his mercy. The bread and the wine are his provision unto us, his gift unto us. Because Jesus Christ, the one he sent on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you, broken for us. And he took the cup. He said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. So when we eat and we drink, we partake of what has been given to us by our Father in heaven, his very Son. Will you join me in prayer?